You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is sponsored by Antioch University's Low Residency MFA program in creative writing. Want to learn how to write fiction, nonfiction, poetry, young adult, screenwriting, or playwriting in a two-year program that's mostly remote? Apply by visiting antioch.edu slash apply. Hi, my name is Jennifer J. Chow. I'm the Lefty Award-nominated author of The Sassy Cat Mysteries. My latest book is Mimi Lee Cracks the Code. Jennifer J. Chow is the Lefty Award-nominated author of The Sassy Cat Mysteries and the forthcoming L.A. Night Market Mysteries. The first in the Sassy Cat series, Mimi Lee Gets a Clue, was selected as an Overdrive Recommended Read, a Pop Sugar Best Summer Beach Read, staff picks for both Richland Library and Changing Hands Bookstore, and is one of BuzzFeed's top five books by AAPI authors. Jennifer has also published other Asian American novels involving secrets and mysteries. She's active in Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, and Crime Writers of Color. Connect with her online at jenniferjchow.com or find her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under at jenjchow. In Mimi Lee Cracks the Code, murder follows Mimi to her romantic island getaway. Mimi Lee just found an extra perk to being a pet groomer at Hollywood. Other than cuddling animals all day long, that is. Pixie St. James, one of Mimi's clients and the investor behind Hollywood, has offered her and her boyfriend Josh a getaway at her vacation home, nestled on beautiful Catalina Island. With the island just outside of Los Angeles, but still far enough from the hustle and bustle, Mimi, Josh, and their cat Marshmallow, who of course wouldn't be caught dead in a dingy pet hotel, are excited for their relaxing stay. That is, until Pixie's last renter, Davis D. Argo, turns up dead. Mimi and Josh's romantic getaway immediately turns into an enormous buzzkill, especially when Pixie asks Mimi for help. The police suspect Pixie, and Mimi knows a thing or two about wrongful allegations. Mimi figures it couldn't hurt to snoop a little, since she's already there, and soon discovers that a valuable item is missing. Pixie isn't the only one in the neighborhood who has been robbed. There is something strange happening on the island, and Mimi won't stop until she finds out what it is. Mimi and Marshmallow came from this idea of pet owner connections. It seems like we often have our pets around us, and they seem to know what we're thinking and doing. So Marshmallow is a telepathic cat. He has an intimate connection with his owner, Mimi Lee, and together they go ahead and solve cases around the Los Angeles area. I think Marshmallow came from my love for reading Garfield comics. I used to read a lot of the comics growing up, and I think that sassiness sort of translated into his character and the way he's really unfiltered in his thinking and talking to Mimi. Mimi Lee came from my own personal background. My dad is Malaysian Chinese, and that's part of Mimi's heritage. Her mom is Malaysian Chinese, and that sort of influenced the character as I developed her. Also, I think she's grounded in a little bit of of my schooling in that she's a psychology major, and I took a lot of classes, practiced social work, and that sort of background came in handy when creating the character. 
in the Sassy Cats mystery series, Mimi Lee gets a clue is Mimi opening up her new pet grooming salon, which is named Hollywood. And she gets accused of a murder for a local dog breeder. So she's clearing her name. Then in the second book, she has developed some of her sleuthing skills. So when her sister, Alice, is suspected of murder at the school where she works, Mimi comes in as the big sister and tries to protect Alice from being suspected and being accused of the murder. I think Mimi has a lot of bad luck because in the third book, her friend Pixie, Pixie St. James, who has given the capital for her to open up Hollywood, she is involved in this case where her name has cropped up also in a murder. So now Mimi's trying to help her friend out, Pixie. I think I, I wrote a mystery just because I, I just loved reading mysteries so much. So it's funny because when I started writing mysteries, I actually didn't think I could do it. I was like, oh, I enjoy reading all these mysteries. I loved Agatha Christie growing up. And I'm not sure if this is quite a true story, but I've heard that she didn't set out to write mysteries and it was sort of a challenge from a friend, right? To say, well, can you really do this? And then she did. So I figured, well, I'm not Agatha Christie, but I figured, you know, I could try to take on this challenge and see if I could write a mystery. But I wasn't sure I could just make that puzzle work and I, in a sense, trick the readers. But I did like it so much. I did like reading mysteries so much that I wanted to try it out. So when I made my first mystery, I just wrote and saw if it could work. And then I presented it to my critiquer and it seemed like they couldn't figure out the ending. So I thought that was a good sign. I would say usually for my writing process, I like to have a routine. I like to have a quiet place and I'll have my cup of tea next to me and I just want to focus on the world and on the words that kind of come out from the creativity. But I would say that book three in this series was totally different. I was writing book three when the pandemic arrived. So everything turned upside down and I had to write without the rituals that I was used to. So instead of having a quiet place, I have a full household and it's pretty noisy. So what I did was I had to squeeze in the time. I ended up sort of writing whenever I could, instead of having these long stretches of time where I could devote to the creative process. I think that my process has changed along the way a little bit. In the beginning, I would be more of a pantser. I think so. I'm just flying by the seat of my pants and I'm writing each scene as it comes along. I don't have a complete sense of who's the killer. And I think in the first mystery that I attempted, it switched. So I had the killer all set up and then it totally turned out to be someone else when I wrote the story. So I believe that with the Sassy Cat Mysteries, I'm a little bit more of a plotter and it's part of the actual business of writing in the sense that I have a contract, I have a synopsis that I need to send to my editor to be approved. So there's more plotting. I have a general outline. Usually I have who the, all the suspects are and different motives for each one or different ways that they're potentially involved in the crime scene. And then I work from there to have an overall 
outline for the main character Mimi and what she encounters throughout this book and the story. For the mystery part, I will craft it almost chapter by chapter and scene by scene on what happens. And I'll try to have the mix of the clues, but also a mix of red herrings thrown in to have the reader kind of get sidetracked. I think I'm more clear on who the killer is, or at least different elements in play. So whether that's the murder weapon or a potential motive, those are kind of already set up when I begin the story. But I still leave room for kind of organic growth. So it may veer off like this character may end up saying something that changes the course of the story as well. I myself leave a little mystery when I'm writing so I can make it more mysterious for the reader as well, I hope. Also, I think that book three was really hard because of all the events that were going around outside of my control. And so what I did was I had friends who walked alongside me. These are writer friends who ended up writing sprints together. So what we did was we would text each other and say, okay, let's start. It's 10 a.m. and we're going to write for... 30 minutes or an hour. And then when the time was up, we would kind of present our accomplishments to each other, encourage each other to keep going. The writing sprints group actually came out of this blogging community I'm a part of. One of my group blogs that I'm on is called Chicks on the Case. So that's chicksonthecase.com. And we're a group of mystery writers with a killer sense of humor. So we have that community already. And then we just ended up texting each other and making sure that we're on task for writing. Later on, I also had a virtual critique group, which also helped me make sure I put the words on the paper. Sometimes I actually did use paper. I think when I got stuck, especially during this time, I ended up putting my thoughts on paper and having the words flow there. So it made for an easier way to connect the scenes. And where that group came from was Writer's Program at UCLA. I think we ended up all getting together based on friend of a friend connection. We had one person who knew another person who went to an in-person class and then they connected to a friend and then roped another person in. So that kind of created our group. So I think a lot of my writing for this book three happened in spurts and it definitely happened in a community. I think the first draft of book three, I would say it might have taken six to eight months, but that might be a very unpolished draft of book three. Contrast that with book one, which I think took me over a year to write. A part of it is the deadlines. (laughs) So in the contract, I'll have specific deadlines and due dates to turn in materials. Plus, I think that cozy mysteries in general, they tend to be published closer together. This way a reader latches onto the first book and then they won't have such a long wait until the second book. So I think that definitely the timeline is shortened in subsequent books to get the ideas out there and to continue crafting. In a way, it's nice to have that series element because it's easier than starting from scratch. 
you already have the main characters involved and then you just pull in new side characters and new events. So it makes for an easier flow and the ability to, to get back into the writing process and to draft that book and get that out there. I think the difference in writing a subsequent book in a series is that you already have the characters and the world developed. So in the first book, I had to craft everything up from nothing, basically. So I was introducing a lot of the different elements and side characters and personalities. In the third book, usually readers already have a sense of what the world is like. So I'm trying to build on that. I want to make sure that I go in depth with what I've already created. It's an interesting balance because I have the readers who already are along for the series, but then I have the new readers. So I'm trying to juggle between putting out the information and reorienting people who have seen the world before and then also getting the new people just caught up to speed on everything that's happened and how this place works, especially with a, a talking cat or a telepathic cat in the mix. I think that's definitely different. And I also try to put in some cameos for earlier readers so that they'll enjoy the series like, hey, you know, I remember that person from book one or book two. I also kind of up the stakes a little bit in relationships. Like the mom in the series, she's into matchmaking. So in the first book, you'll see her matchmaking a lot with Mimi. But then in the second book, she moves on to the sister. So it's sort of like making sure I have those inside jokes, but then kind of increasing the humor of them as well as I go on. I think in the third book too, I wanted to change up the location a little bit. It's always set around Los Angeles, but in the third book, I made a detour to Catalina Island so that there's the new scenery and sort of some freshness to this book three so that readers would kind of enjoy that newness to it. I came up with that mainly because I actually took a vacation to Catalina Island and wrote everything down, took all these pictures, went to the museum. And I think I just sort of infused in my mind and it was kind of in the subconscious as I was crafting book three. I didn't really have a complete detailed picture of where I wanted to go with that book. I knew I had the false suspect in Mimi's friend Pixie but I hadn't really settled in on a lot of the different details. But then once I thought about the Catalina trip and, you know, how amazing would it be to have the island involved, then the rest of the plot sort of developed from there. I really like to infuse humor in my mysteries because that's what I enjoy reading. I like having that lighthearted part of the book. It makes me escape and I feel like my books are very quintessentially what they call cozy mysteries. These are feel-good books that you can cozy up with, usually lighthearted mysteries. There's no sex. There's no violence. There's probably no profanity as well that have a happy ending. Justice gets served. And it's a really nice way to escape and also to remember to have hope. It gives you a positive and brighter perspective of the world around you. I think that humor, sometimes you think it doesn't really go well with murder. And I mean, I wouldn't make fun of like 
person getting killed necessarily or the idea of someone's family being affected by something tragic like that. But I think that humor is a way that we cope with things. That's why when we get humor into murder mystery, sometimes it is helpful to have that to have that breather and to be able to, you know, continue on. I mean, that happens, I think, in real life as well. I like the humor as well because it sort of comes out of my characters. When I'm writing it, I'm not necessarily thinking, wow, is this a funny thing that I'm writing? I will just write to what the characters do or what the characters say. In the Sassy Cat Mysteries, it's mostly Marshmallow who has all these zingers and that just comes naturally from his personality. I did think though, as an aside, that when I first envisioned the series, I was thinking, oh, this is totally funny because Cat is going to be interesting situations, especially because I made him telepathic. Now he's talking to his owner and then the owner's responding to the cat, but nobody else around Mimi knows that she's talking to a cat. So that could be like very funny situations. But at the same time, I did have a worry that is this going to be funny enough? It might be funny in my own head, but then maybe the editor's not going to think it's funny or like no one else will think it's funny. So that's a little bit, I guess, the difficulty of infusing humor. You hope that people understand your humor. That's the nice thing about having extra readers to see, okay, what were their reactions? It's especially good when you have someone live and they're reading the chapter to see if they're actually laughing at it. Because if they're silent, then you're, then you know, okay, there's something wrong with that one part. Since I really have tight deadlines, I'm trying to keep things fresh in my mind by immersing myself in the world. I think one of the great things about writing is that I enjoy being caught up with the characters and what's going on in their lives. So I hope that that sort of interest that I have as I write comes out in each book, even though it's part of the same series. In terms of editing, I also try to make sure that I am able to actually take a little bit of distance when I finish my first draft. I want to make sure that I've got a little time gap there. So when I reread the work, it seems new to me. And then I can edit it better because it's like a new piece of work. The nice thing also about having a large publisher, I think, in a way, is that I have tight deadlines, but the publisher themselves, they have a long process to do things. There's a lot of behind the scenes on getting the cover done or getting the blurb done or having the typeset correctly or the little details, interior details. There's all that stuff that's so involved, which actually gives me some leeway in terms of how much time that I get to edit things. So while they're doing all that stuff behind the scenes, I have some more time to kind of look at my manuscript and think about it and hopefully tweak it for a better version. So when I start off with a revision, it has to go through several steps. The first draft to the final product is a long journey. After the first draft, this is the first rough, rough, rough draft. I go over it several times. This means either reading it, putting it on an e-reader and reading it as I would a book. 
or it could mean reading it on the screen, or sometimes I'll listen to it. So I'll have it play back from text to voice and then have it play back to me for me to spot any errors. I will also print out copies potentially to read it and then write my notes and see what I can do to improve it. And then exploring the plot holes and fixing those up. So I'll pretend that I'm reading someone else's book and then that makes editing work a lot better. I like having a critique group and going there and presenting chapters and then having the thoughts. So if I have the time to workshop the chapters, I'll definitely do that. I also will get some beta reader feedback. So these are readers who read the whole manuscript and then tell me just overall in the story where there might be discrepancies or things that don't work for them. So then I can go focus on that. I think it takes quite some time from the first draft of Polish to turn into the editor. It definitely took maybe weeks to months. It's better if I have the more time, the better. After I take all this input from myself and then from other people around me, that's when I send it to my editor. This is different than when I'm first trying to get a book deal, in which case I would send it to the agent. But since I already have an established contract and an editor at the imprint, what happens in this case is that I'll send the polished draft to the editor at Berkeley, which is where I'm at. She'll go through it and make the large cuts of developmental edits. She'll give me a letter and then the actual manuscript marked up with notes and different changes. So then I have to work through mostly big picture items, but also flow and wording and dialogue and you know more specific detailed stuff as well. And then the turnaround time for that is generally weeks. So it could be two weeks, three weeks, and it's a really short time because they already have everything set up on their end to have the books go out to press. They want it to be all ready. They have like the cover are ready to go. They have the back cover blurb. So it takes a lot of time for them to set up on their end. So it's better to have everything turned in. When I turn back the development edits, then I get the copy edits. So then someone else, not the same editor, a different editor comes back to me. And that's when the manuscript is pretty much marked line by line, words, grammar, or typos, or continuity. And then I have to fix all those. After I turn in those copy edits, then I get a chance to look through things to see it all laid out in the first pass pages where there's interior design and the layout of the book. And then I see how it flows and if I catch anything, but there's an additional step, which is a proofreader will often come in at the very end too. Proofreader will tell me, oh, you know, this is maybe not the correct word or they'll actually research things. In my first book, Mimi Lee gets a clue. There's this point in the story where they play a game of Scrabble and I had set up the tiles in a certain way, but it didn't make sense point-wise. <laughs> so the proofreader told me, okay, look, these are the tiles in a Scrabble game and these are the points that they're awarded and you can only put certain letters in certain places to actually make up the board. <laughs> so I had to rearrange it so that it would actually work. So I'm, I'm very thankful for proofreaders for doing 
you know, the hard nitty gritty task of researching things and getting things right. The proofreading process, I think, is probably the quickest in a way, because usually it's it's either nothing, which is great, <laughs> or it'll just be very minor things. And then that's usually solved within, you know, a day, a couple days. I think after proofreading, it's all about supporting the book for publication. Way, probably way before proofreading, depending on when the catalog is already set for the publisher, you might already have the cover out there. You might already have the pre-order link up. So a lot of it is just making sure that you get the word out and you get the support ready for that book. The other thing is because I'm writing a series, some of it is also funneled to different areas. So my energy gets diverted to not only the edits for the current book, but potentially writing another book in the series or going backwards and marketing the first book in the series. Usually for a series, it's the first book that draws people in. So then a lot of attention is also not focused necessarily on the current book, but on the first book in the series. I think being a series author is slightly different than writing standalones. For a series author, you almost have to be willing to immerse yourself in the same world over and over again. You want to make sure you have a high level of interest in your characters and in everything you've already developed. I also think that it's a lot of writing in short bursts because you have such tight deadlines. So there's not as much wiggle room if you wanted to kind of expand and do a standalone. What is uncertain about being a serious author is that the book contracts are, are hard to predict. Usually you'll get a contract for two books or three books in a series, but the continuation of that series is dependent on how the books do. Everything sort of revolves around the sales of the books and then your contract will continue. And then you may have who knows how long of a series, could be books and books or it could not be. I think it's actually hard for a writer to predict because there often have been my author friends who were in a series and then the series gets cut in the middle or they actually end a series, but they didn't know they were ending the series. So then it's sort of a cliffhanger for them. I think that's sort of the unpredictability. I would say though, I do also have friends who have had their series end and then say, great, now I can work on the standalone that I've been thinking about for like years and years and I have the time to do it now. I think that burnout is really common. I think for serious authors, I actually have a friend of a friend who did get uh, burned out. They were writing series after series and they actually needed to take a break. I think just health-wise for themselves. So I think that's definitely difficult for writers. I'm wondering, as I start juggling multiple, potentially multiple series, like how that will work. I know that I have other friends who are doing it. So I'm definitely going to lean on their expertise on how to definitely make it work. I think the nice thing about having multiple projects is that hopefully you're getting into two different or three or however many writing kinds of worlds. So maybe you can go into one world and just stay there and it'll seem 
fresh and different from this other second world that you're creating. I mean, I have a friend who she will write one series in the morning. And it's always in the morning that she does the one series. In the afternoon, she'll do her second series and she'll can focus all the afternoon writing is for that series. I think that's the way she separates it in her mind. I'm not sure if I could do that, like write maybe in the middle of one book, writing it and then flip in the afternoon to a different book. Uh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to make my own sort of path and figure out a way that I can stay in the world and write it all. Probably write the one book and then do the second book after that. I would say I did everything backwards in my agent search. So maybe do not follow me or I don't know, hope that it all works out. <laughs> what happened with the Sassy Cat Mysteries is that the editor ended up approaching me. Berkeley Penguin House already had sort of a series, maybe idea in their mind, which is something about pets. And they had an Asian female protagonist not like mine, who's has Malaysian Chinese heritage, but something different. They were looking for a writer. So mine is kind of like a writer for hire story in the sense that the imprint already had an idea that they were thinking they wanted to go with. So they searched in-house for an author that might want to do this series or might be qualified to kind of write the series in a way. And they ended up reaching outside of the imprint because I already had Indie published a mystery, they found that mystery online and then they contacted me. I wanted to independently publish my first mystery, partially because I wasn't sure. I was just trying to challenge myself. So I didn't really think too much about it. And part of the challenge for me was not only writing a mystery, that was a different genre than I was used to, but it was also exploring the idea of self-publishing. What is it like? What, how does the self-publishing world work? So I guess it was a double challenge in the sense that I was writing mystery and then I was also self-publishing the mystery. The way I got to self-publishing too was a little bit not a straight path. I thought about doing some queries and I, I sort of started on the querying process for that as well. But part of why... I wanted to self-publish was, so my mom ended up getting sick at that time. And I've grown up reading the Agatha Christie novels and stories with her. And so part of it was wanting to have a quicker process in getting the book out there. I mean, I still did the required legwork, which you have to do when you're indie publishing, which is have actual experts do certain things. You write the manuscript, but you still have to get the cover artist. You still have to get an editor on board. So those things take time, but not as much time as it would if I had gone through a publisher. The books that Berkeley had found were part of the Winston Wong series. It's called Senior Sleuth. That's the one they discovered online. And they liked it so much. The editor at the time actually said, oh, I laughed out loud. So I thought that was a good, good, you know, good sign. So then they asked for some sample chapters. They said, you can make, here's our idea, but you can just play around with it and sort of tweak it however, make it your own. So then I ended up writing a few sample chapters and turning it in. 
unknown to me, I guess they had also uh, solicited other people to write the same at the same time. So then I waited and thought, oh, they probably passed because I haven't heard anything for months. Then I get this call from out of the blue and they said, hey, by the way, we read your sample chapters and out of the other authors whom we also asked, which surprised me, they said, oh, we liked yours. I ended up getting the contract and they already had conceived of it as a three book, at, at least three books in the series. So I had the deal. I would say it's definitely a needle in a haystack to get a deal from having your work out there. That was one of the reasons that I self-published. And I think that I wasn't going in there believing that, oh, someone's going to spot me and I'm going to get a deal. It was more, this is a project that I enjoyed and that I want to get out there, not necessarily for the world even, but just for my mom. She did end up seeing a draft of it before she passed. So at least she was able to see some of it. And I think that, I mean, it's going to be very uncommon, I think, for an editor to come by and be like, well, I see your work out there. Let me read it. Oh, I like your work. Let me contact you. Honestly, when I got approached by the editor, I first like Googled everything and thought, I, I bet you this is a hoax. I bet you this is someone putting me on. So then I tried to Google the name and make sure like, does this person really work there? Is this like a... I don't know, fishing scam or something. And I also asked some author friends, wait, do you, do you know this person? So after I verified the identity of the editor, I thought, okay, this is a you know legit thing and it's actually happening. So then I responded. After I got the deal, I thought, hey, I better, maybe I should look at literary agents again. So I asked the editor and also some writer friends for agent recommendations. After that, I contacted the different agents, talked to them to see who would be a good fit. And that's how I ended up with my agent. Then I ended up doing books two and three in the Winston Wong series because I wanted to have that con continuity in the world. I had already had the ideas and written a lot of it out. I ended up publishing those prior to the first one in the Sassy Cat Mystery series because I wanted to make sure I got them out in the world and I didn't want them to compete with the Sassy Cat Mystery books that were also going to be released. My agent, Jessica, she is more of a contract negotiator for books that are already in the making. So if it already has a deal, then she's going to work hard on the negotiation side and also for further books to be written in the whole career. If I was submitting just offhand, then she would actually read the manuscript and do the edit work and do the fine tuning to make sure she could pitch it to the editors at different publishing houses. For her though, since I already had the Sassy Cat deal in place, she was more of a supporter and cheerleader, I think for my career. In fact, we actually pitched another series concept, which got accepted by Berkeley. So it's going to be a new series that's going to come out, which is a night market series. So it's still set in Los Angeles, but it's focused on these two cousins who run this food stall at this night market. And then they get involved in the crime scene and they have to prove their innocence and go from there. What I really like is this advice 
that I actually read by Joanna Penn. She writes this blog called The Creative Pen. And she talks about goals. She talks about having Olympic goals. So this means instead of making your expectations revolve around like a short time span, I'm going to get this done in a month or even a year, you look every four years and you measure yourself and your success through those four years. And the key to this also is not to measure it against other people, but to actually measure it against your own path and your own milestones. Oftentimes, I think we get stuck, especially as writers, we want the next thing. And it's so easy to see people who are quote unquote overnight successes, then not understanding all the work that's put in, you know, before they sort of break out. I think when we refocus and say, okay, let's look at my own life. Let's see where I was four years ago and then mark that. And then the next four years and then mark it. It's a lot easier to see the trajectory of your path. I think it's a lot more encouraging. So I definitely would say to persevere if you're an aspiring writer and to measure it on your own terms in longer time spans, um, whether it's four years or even more. Also, I think part of the persevering is making sure that you are in a community. It's great when you have people you can meet in person, but you can also build up virtual communities as well. Like I said, I was part of, or I am part of actually two group blogs, but I'm also part of other online communities. The mystery writing community is especially warm and welcoming and supportive of one another. I'm part of uh, Crime Writers of Color, which is a group of diverse authors who write in crime fiction or mysteries or thrillers. And I think having the group of like-minded people who are spurring each other on is also really important as you're writing. It can be a solitary thing, writing. So it's, it's very nice to have that camaraderie when you can get it. And now a reading from Mimi Lee Cracks the Code. Pixie te- texted, can you come over? Police are on their way. What had happened? Once I'd gotten Marshmallow into the car, we hurtled down the streets. A dozen different scenarios flooded my brain, each situation worse than the last. Did she get robbed? Was Gelato hurt? Could this be a life and death matter? When I arrived at Pixie's house, I knocked on the door. It's Mimi. Pixie opened it, and while she didn't seem to be in any immediate danger, her face appeared paler than usual. She seemed unharmed, though. Gelato sat near her feet and yipped a warm welcome to Marshmallow. I enveloped Pixie in a huge hug that my dad would have been proud of. Maybe his bear-hugging talent had passed down a generation. What's going on, Pixie? I received a call from a Detective Brown. He wanted to chat, and I automatically said yes, but I know you've had some scuffles with him before. It was smarter for you to text me. I felt my jaw tighten. The last time I'd been privy to one of the detective's friendly chats, he'd been pegging my sister for murder. Pixie invited me over to her immaculate kitchen. She pulled out a few glasses from a cabinet, but left them sitting empty on the breakfast bar counter as she stared distractedly toward the foyer. A few tense moments passed with her clutching onto the glassware before the doorbell rang. She hurried to let in a detective, Gelato nipping at her heels like a fierce little guard dog. I heard Detective Brown's voice thunder in the air. May we both come in? Had he brought along a partner? That was new. A yip from Gelato and a responding sweet purr answered my question. Marshmallow and I glanced at each other. Nimbus, I said as my cat nodded. 
Hope you don't mind, the detective said to Pixie. I just came from the vets. Not a problem, she said. Detective Brown had brought over the stray kitten I'd found hanging around Roosevelt Elementary, the school where my sister worked. I named the kitty myself after I'd washed off the dirt and discovered a soft gray ball of fluff underneath. Even a hardened cop like Detective Brown couldn't resist her cuteness, and he'd soon adopted Nimbus. Pixie and the detective walked into the room with measured steps. Nimbus scampered into view and said hello to Marshmallow, greeting him with a nose rub. When Detective Brown spotted my presence at the breakfast bar, he stopped in his tracks and stared at me. A muscle in his neck twitched. Miss Lee, what are you doing here? I'm a friend of Pixie's, I said. After all, she gave me the capital to open up Hollywood, and friends always have each other's backs. I didn't know if he'd heard my aggressive verbal promise of support for Pixie, but he straightened the lapel of his gray suit jacket. It looked free of fur, so he neither excessively lint-rolled the thing or the kitty fur happened to match the fabric. I pulled out a stool for Pixie to sit on. She settled in the ergonomic seating and cradled the shih tzu on her lap. Kudos to the excitable pup because he managed to stay still and provided her with much-needed emotional comfort. Detective Brown remained standing, a power move, if ever I saw one. I excused myself to rummage in the kitchen for beverages. Maybe Pixie would feel calmer with a drink in her hand. However, I didn't know how to make any of her fancy concoctions and had to settle for a large bottle of purified volcanic water. I poured some into the three glasses on the counter. The detective ignored my attempt at hospitality. He leaned against the countertop and narrowed his gaze at my friend. Pixie St. James, he said. Have you ever been in contact with someone named Davis D. Argo? She gave a no not to stare back at the detective. No, never. Marshmallow and Nimbus showed up for the questioning party, and the gray kitty rubbed herself against Pixie's ankles. Pixie, in turn, reached down and stroked the kitty's head. Detective Brown leaned closer to Pixie and towered over her. You might know the man better as Dwayne A. Pixie's eyes widened. I take it you recognize that name, Detective Brown said, as Nimbus continued to endear herself to Pixie's legs. Marshmallow twitched his whiskers. I know what you're trying to do, Detective Brown. Good cat, bad cop. But it won't work on Pixie because she's innocent. I piped up. Stop badgering the witness, Detective. Sometimes Josh's legalese slipped out of my mouth by accident. Pixie sipped her volcanic water and composed herself. She straightened her back and said, I've got nothing to hide. I do know the last person you mentioned, this Dwayne fellow, rented my house on Catalina Island. The detective rubbed at his stubble. Did you have any problems with this individual, Miss St. James? She focused her gaze on the clear contents of her glass, as though searching for an answer there. After a short pause, she said, he was supposed to have vacated the premises a couple of days ago when the cleaning crew went to clean house for my next guests. She avoided eye contact with me maybe not wanting to involve me in this. They mentioned he'd left some of his belongings and had deliberately ruined the carpet with a blue stain. Detective Brown gave a low whistle. So the man didn't want to agreeably leave your rental property? In a calm voice, Pixie said, I'm taking care of the situation. I know, Detective Brown said. I've recovered a threatening letter that you wrote to Davis. Pixie opened her mouth, but no sound came out. Marshmallow hissed. What letter? I asked. I have an evidence, a note telling Davis to get off Miss St. James' property on pain of death. What? Who even speaks like that? I said. Sounded like a line from an old movie. Apparently, Detective Brown said, Miss St. James does. I glared at the cop. Where's your proof? He reached in his pocket, took his phone out, and showed me the image of a document. I scanned it, focusing on a name in cursive at the bottom of the letter. He then presented the picture to Pixie. Is this your signature, Miss St. James? 
She jutted her chin at him. It looks like it, but I didn't write that note. I moved toward the detective, craning my neck and peered again at the image on the phone. The rest of the document is typewritten, I said. It's not even in Pixie's handwriting. Doesn't that seem suspicious to you? I call this letter a solid lead, Detective Brown said. To what? Davis Argo recently disappeared after making a trip to the island. My hand flew to my mouth. Ma had been talking to me about someone going missing on Catalina Island, and it'd been Pixie's renter. Detective Brown's face shuddered. Yes, it's already been broadcast on the news. He turned to Pixie. I believe that Davis's sister even phoned you to ask about him. Pixie gave a slow nod, and I remembered the call she'd received the other day from an unknown number. I blurted, maybe the guy drowned in the ocean, disappeared when his jet skiing went south. The tragic accident was sad, but at least it would get the detective off my friend's case. Detective Brown's face grew grim. The man's not missing anymore. Pixie wrinkled her nose. If he's been found, then why are you here questioning me? Detective Brown gave a short cough. Yes, we did discover him. Dead. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.